So welcome everyone to the uh, CMS Colloquium. My name is William Iricchio, one of the professors here. Um, and usually I'm here with open documentary stuff, but tonight with the colloquium. And it's a real honor and privilege to have Shawna Kidman with us tonight for a couple of reasons. Number one, political economy is her thing, and it's a thing we don't have enough of in this program, and it's just wonderful to, some of you here have heard that rant more than once, but it's uh, uh, just delighted to have this perspective um, articulated tonight. And secondly, this work has to do, obviously, as you can see, with infrastructure of the US comic book industry. Comics uh, are an area that I've done a lot of work, um, including on the political economy, and where I learned, in a way, the hard way that um, when you cross Warner Brothers, you don't get to use pictures, and you have to use lawyers to circumvent their cover issues and IP. It leads to difficulties. Um, Shauna is someone who cut her teeth in the industry, which makes her very special in this space. Uh, worked in the media industry uh, before stepping into the academic world, um, where those teeth sharpened were probably sharpened even further. Uh, media studies program at University of Southern California, where Henry Jenkins, uh, uh, formerly from this program, is now present. Um, but you were at the School of Cinematic Arts, which I guess Henry has an affiliation with. Yeah. Um, Shauna's work is, is pretty far-reaching. It looks at issues like streaming content and just digital distribution, copyright law, audiences, um, but above all, media industries. And that's what we're going to hear about tonight. We're going to hear about this, uh, the role of comics in driving that industry. And um, welcome, and thank you. Thanks. Thank you, everybody, for coming for braving public spaces right now. I appreciate it. Um, and I hope you are enjoying the Mexican food. Um, so uh, I recently wrote a history of the comic book industry. Um, and I plan to talk today about the research I did for that book. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about methodology, uh, what a political economy approach to media looks like. Uh, a little bit about my background and how I came to this topic, which, uh, like William said, is a, a little unorthodox. Um, and also some of the things that I think are really important for media scholarship right now. Um, I'll start by saying that there are a lot of comic book histories out there. Mine is certainly not the first. But the focus has tended to be on texts and analysis, um, on the history of the creators, these kind of great men biographies. Uh, and there's been a lot less interest in institutions and in infrastructure. So corporate organization and financial strategies and labor practices and legal discourse, regulatory systems, uh, distribution networks. Um, those are all the things I'm interested in. Although I will say that one of the great exceptions was your anthology, Many Lives of Batman. Uh, from 30 years ago uh, with a reprint, um, but for really one of the only books um, that kind of charted a course in this space. When you're not interested in these kinds of things, in these kinds of systems, it is easy to lose sight of what I call a kind of structuring paradox within the medium. Um, comic books are profoundly popular source material. Um, they're pretty much everywhere lately, but the medium itself, the 32-page booklet, um, has in a lot of ways ceased to matter uh, uh, economically and culturally. The comic book industry is quite small. Um, these are the major companies in the comic book industry. They tend to be pretty small companies. There's not that many outside of this. Um, and they have a relatively small output. Uh, 
back in the 1950s, comic books had 70 million regular readers in this country. That was half of the US population. Any guesses uh, for how many regular readers there are of comic books today? Estimates. Any guesses? Including online? So, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't think. I don't think online has necessarily shifted it that much according to most industry es estimates. So uh, yeah, including online. Manga, uh, 15 million. No, not even, not even close. <laughs> no, like seven, seven million. What, seven million? The, late, the estimates I've heard are closer to about two million. Wow. Um, so one half of 1% of the US population. Um, but, uh, you know, this is surprising because comic books have such a high cultural profile right now um, and certainly a more respected cultural profile than they have at pretty much any point in their history. And that includes um, when a lot of Americans actually read them. Can I ask a question? How are you defining comic books? Because obviously graphic novels are the whole huge. I, I am including graphic novels. And as a, as a side note, I will say the biggest growth area of, of comic books and graphic novels, and probably the, the group that's pushing that number much higher than 2 million right now, would be the growth of scholastic graphic novels for kids. That is pretty much all the growth in the comic book industry in the last few areas has been in that scholastic market. Anyone here have, have kids who read scholastic comic graphic novels? So that's a huge, huge growth area, and that's probably pushing it above that 2 million. But other kind of uh, more literary graphic novels for adults um, would still be in that smaller number. Um, so how is it that comic books have declined in popularity so profoundly while mass media has taken them up so aggressively? Or more simply, why are comic books uh, such popular source of material today? So most answers to this question, again, uh, tend to focus on texts and creators. Uh, so there's a theory that superheroes emerged after 9-11, when society needed a new cultural narrative. Um, there's a lot of interest in superheroes as modern mythology. Um, there's an immigrant narrative, the vigilante, the outsider, all of these you know, important myths. Uh, ideas about world building, that we all want to be in, immersed in universes, and comic books give us that. Uh, some suggest that it's techno-cultural, that it's the rise of CGI, that it's, um, that it's the kind of stories we can now tell with this technology. Um, and many people, fans especially, will just argue that it is the quality of the original characters and stories um, created by great artists developed over many decades. Um, in all of these explanations, there's very little attention to infrastructure. Um, and I don't think any of these cultural uh, explanations or narratives are wrong. Uh, I just find them to be insufficient. Uh, and these narratives very often fail to account for their own origin. And I'm just curious about reaction to your book. So you pull back the veil. You've, you're, you're sort of pointing to some of, the, some of the operations that are not usually well publicized. Have you heard from your old contacts in the industry? And do you expect, uh, what, what, what kind of, do you expect a reaction from the industry? I mean, this, is, this gets to the kind of um, core issues of, of what it, where we place scholarship and academia in relation to the industry. Um, I was in contact with uh, some of my old bosses, but I, I, 
I kind of kept up relations with Paul Levitz, mm-hmm. um, and he was very excited. He was the president of DC for a very long time, and he was really excited about the book. And I, I haven't um, heard from him since he's actually read it. So, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of like the, the little inroads. But Paul has stepped over to the academy. He's teaching at Princeton. He was teaching at Princeton. Yeah, yeah. and he's supportive. Yeah. He's supportive. Um, I, think, I, I think I'm still working towards how to make this kind of work legible within the industry itself. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I'm still a young scholar, and I think that that is one of my big challenges. Um, I have taught in LA, I've taught at USC, in Occidental, and now at UC San Diego. And I think one of my, basically my, my focus and my passion has been in teaching students who are about to step into the industry and pointing all of this out and giving this framework for them. Right? We've got all these students who come through our, our institution who can't wait to go do this stuff. And basically my message to them is always go, do it, do it well. Be aware of all the limitations, and when you're there, fix the wrongs, fix the systems that you are in touch with. You also have this complication that I want to write a second book. I want to write a second book specifically on financing, and I want to talk to a bunch of folks about how that works. And if I want to get that access, in some ways, I actually have to hide my prior work from them. You know, so I'm, you know, going through the struggle right now, like, do I, do I send copies of my book out to people I want to read it, or do I just keep it within the academy so I can keep doing my work? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a real serious predicament for industry scholars about how to manage those industry relations, because you both rely on them, but you also <coughs> want to change them. That's the entire objective. So an alias coming in. <laughs> yeah, that actually <clears throat> ties into the question I wanted to ask, which was what kind of pushback are you getting from the book? Like, are, are, people are very married to their narratives of, of, you know, the great man or the, the you know, the, our strength is why we survived or, you know, whatever narrative it is. What kind of pushback are you, are you getting to the way that you've laid things out? I mean, the, the comic book <laughs> scholarly community has not always been like very friendly to my work. I think I do get some pushback. I don't get as open a reception as I want. But scholars overall are wonderful people. And you know, the the comic book scholars who have read the book have been very kind about it and who've, you know, sent me notes and written reviews and, and I think been really positive about the the way I'm shifting it, you know, I don't want to like toot my own horn, um, but but it's it it's it's been a struggle to I think move too heavily in comic book scholarly circles because this also isn't necessarily of, of key interest to most comic book scholars, um, but I think any scholar who who reads something that adds to their knowledge is 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 thrilled to have it. I mean. Most of us come here in, in good faith. Um, there's this saying in like the music industry, like a band has their entire lifetime to put out their first album and one year to put out their second album. And in the context of comic books, it's like you know, from 1930 to whenever, these all of these characters were developed that we currently see on the screen for the most part. And uh, and if nobody's reading comic books anymore except like me. 
like where do where where does the next generation of content come from? I mean, there's there's hints of it. Like Miles Morales shows up all of a sudden. He's only been in the comics for a few years, but he he makes his debut somehow, and people buy into you know this new version of Spider-Man. But yeah. but in essence, most of this content is 70, 80, 90 years old. Where does the next round come from? I guess. I think it's a real problem, and it's not just a problem with comic book content. It's a problem right now with streaming content, so you can see how this carries over. So you have these companies, and you know, it just this is this is at the core of Disney's problem, right? So Disney now has Disney Plus, the streaming platform, and they have all of this content that they have spent 80, 90 years building this, this huge catalog of truly beloved content, which now includes all of the Marvel content. But the way they are now distributing and releasing, because it is so focused on the past, they're actually creating very little new content. Um, right, they're, they're not creating like the new TV shows. I mean, no one's really creating the new TV shows. Like we don't have something that's gonna replace Friends in the office. Who here watches Friends or Office on streaming? No, not that many of you? There's some of the most popular streaming uh, kinds of content that, that are out there. No one is making content like that anymore. So I think we are going to come to a moment, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, where all of these companies have reor and reoriented themselves around directly distributing their content to consumers, but they're not generating new IP they're not generating the new kind of content to actually um, inhabit those spaces that they're pouring billions of dollars into creating. So I, I think it's a real problem, and it's also a representational issue. When most of your big cultural products come from before the 1960s, you have representational problems. There's just no way around that. Like it's These characters have a lot of cultural baggage with them, um, so I think it's I think it's a shame that we're not drawing from newer content. Um, thanks. Um, I'm curious about a couple of things. You you mentioned I think it alluded to sort of foreign investors who mm -hmm. wanted to be in Hollywood, and you specifically mentioned Japanese investors. So I'm kind of curious to hear a little more about. So they just didn't do their due diligence. They didn't have sophisticated enough people in their legal departments to peer into this, if it's fair to say, opaque um, uh, finance, you know, these deals. Um, how, how, did it, how, how did that work that they were able to be, they were, they were able to flummox people in the ways that you described with these? So that's one. And then um, how much, I understand, you know, so, that, so somebody comes up with an idea, we're gonna take a superhero, figure and you're gonna make a movie and you're gonna make a lot of money. Um, and but the rise of that, the success of that, was there how did that relate to globalization and WTO and and because it sort of coincides a little bit with the chronology of you know the protests in Seattle in nineteen you know just around two thousand there were some some significant things that happened in terms of globalization that how they fit into that? Yeah. If, if there was a relationship between those two 
kinds of things. I, I wouldn't say to the to the Seattle protest specifically. Well, I know. I just I just, yeah, I'm the, just as a global, marker, a marker to something that was happening. Yeah, globalization is a huge part of this story, um, but I, I really do think it's a kind of gradual shift. So if you if you kind of go back and, and read the trades through all those decades, uh, you see it spread. So first in I believe in like the early 1980s, the European market starts to become a thing, right? So at first, these companies are only interested in the US market, and then their scope starts to expand and they start to focus a little bit more on the European market, and then you start to see that move to like the East Asian market, and then you, you just, the, the interest grows and grows. And at that time, you kind of gradually see this shift in domestic box office versus international box office. Um, and a bit after this transition in 2001 flips, and the global box office becomes bigger. But as you kind of watch those come closer and then flip, it's it's a relatively kind of gradual change. And it's, it's a huge part of the story. There's also a lot of industry lore wrapped up in it. So there has long been the idea that certain genres travel and certain genres don't, right? So, you know, in the kind of very negative space, um, there has always been the saying that, that black don't travel. That you cannot make a diverse film that travels globally, which is like completely moronic, like it doesn't make any sense. But that was long an established idea in Hollywood. So as the industry globalizes, they gravitate towards, I mean, not, they didn't have to gravitate towards all white content. It just justified the fact that there was no diversity. Um, another kind of industry lore about globalization is that action movies with iconic characters travel best. You can't do comedies globally because there's translation issues. You can't do anything that's too regional. You can't do drama because it's location specific. So there was this notion that the only travels that could, the only movies that could actually work in a global market were action movies. So you start seeing a real desire for big action movies in the mid 90s, and that just intensifies. And once they realize that superheroes travel well, you know that's part of this big shift. Um, the other question about the investors, um, yeah, there, there's just a, a, a lot of evidence, and it's really hard to get a look at these deals because they're confidential. Um, but, but from what I've seen, you know, the, there's some amount of trade reporting on it, um, and, and there's media economists who talk about it and who have gotten a closer look at it. Um, and yeah, they, there, there were some not great deals and people were over eager to get into the business. And it tended to be waves of investors from different regions and different areas. Um, and like when you read the trades, it's, it's, they're, they're kind of uh, referred to in cloaked ways, you know, the Japanese investors and then everybody will talk about the Japanese investors for a period of two or three years and then it's, well, it's Credit Lyonnais and it's the European banks and you kind of see these shifting and each cycle of investors kind of gets out after they kind of lose themselves on it. And eventually you kind of get a dialogue or a discourse in Hollywood about this happening, about, um, about Hollywood being a bad place to invest. Um, the private equity folks, after some losses in the like early 2000s, have turned it around. Um, and they are now potentially getting the, the best of Hollywood. It's, they've kind of flipped it. 
that's a whole other story. Yeah. So you're, I was really intrigued when you talked about the black box and the way that you have the subsidiaries giving off all the profits while the yeah. core enterprise might actually look like it's losing money. Yeah. And that is exactly how the transcontinental railroads got built in the 19th century. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I think that kind of financial stuff only ends with regulation. Um, Philip Hollywood's not going to be regulated. No. I'm wondering, is the WGA or the other unions, do they have a shot at um, having any kind of impact on that? Um, um, I think it doesn't look great, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, we're likely to have a strike in the next year because these negotiations are going pretty poorly. Basically what's happened is all the writers fired their agents in mass. They collectively fired their agents. Um, although, and then they started making the good deals, the deals the WGA wanted them to make. But there's a lot of talk that people are secretly going back to their agents, kind of undercover. And then you have the showrunners, the producers, also kind of backing the agencies. So there's this split that the like regular rank and file writers don't matter anymore, and it's just the writers who are also producers that are kind of shifting. So not having that unity doesn't help much. Um, I don't see the agencies baking, backing down, and now because you have all of this private equity investment in the agencies, it's, it's less on the ground, right? This is not just like me and my agent talking anymore. It is, it is way beyond that, right? These, are, these companies have been financialized. They've been split apart. They're owned by you know, BlackRock and TGM and all these places. It, it's it's going to be really yeah. tough. And the last writer strike, what happened was Hollywood realized that they didn't need writers as much as they thought they did. And they moved to unscripted television and a lot of reality programming and a lot of non-union writing. And they, they found alternatives. And I don't know what that will be this time, like what those alternatives will be. But I fear that any action will result in a shift away from writing instead of towards it. But I'm also a bit of a pessimist, which you've probably figured out by now. Thanks. Um, uh, for your financial book in the future, yeah. um, are you always going to deal with the fact that the, the actual creators are the ones who never made much money in the beginning? Or, in, you know what I mean? Like, so you're, constant, you're talking more about the people who lost money investing in these films, and or the companies who made the films are the ones who then benefited. But then you have all of the actual creators, the writers, the, the artists, et cetera, who, who either made absolutely nothing or you know, chump change in comparison to even the actors in the films. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I actually, uh, I have really a whole chapter dedicated to uh, issues over uh, copyright and creative rights and labor <coughs> struggles within the comic book industry. Um, and yeah, I don't particularly have any sympathy for like the foreign investors of the 80s and 90s. I, I more just think it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, yeah, the, the creative workers are, are really the ones who don't come out of this well. Um, that has long been a problem. Uh, it, it remains a problem. <laughs> that's, that's a kind of short answer, right? No, it's almost sad. I mean, I go to comic conventions and the artists sell their their work for almost nothing. You know, whole pages from comic books for $100 that were hand-drawn over, you know, a period of a week or so. And, and, and they're only doing it because they didn't make enough money in the first round of selling that 
I mean, so what's, what's interesting about that, right, you have, you, right, this kind of feels sad to you. Now, even the artists getting the right to have their own physical work, they fought for that for yeah. 15, 20 years. Just like the, the publishers used to keep the physical, mm -hmm. the physical art and either throw it away or put it in their like back rooms and the artists were not allowed to have them. And then, and they had to, they had to fight, like really fight to get that. Now they have it, but it's it's like, does it really make that much of a difference for them? It's you know, comic comic books are a really tough industry to be in um, as a as a writer or artist. Last question. Okay, okay sure. Well, this maybe not the last, but um, it's a lot. It sounds a lot like the music music <coughs> to me with, with this comment. Um, I'm curious. You sort of talk about this this massive comic book. Uh, production and consumption, and then, then it sort of goes away and it never comes back. Mm -hmm. But you're sort of talking about it at the same time as if there's been a big explosion of it. Am I right in, in understanding what you're saying as the explosion of the comic book industry that's happened more recently is really a film or image, you know, that based version of it, yeah. and if that's the case, you know, I can sort of see how people say, we can make a lot of money with this, but so what's, what's the, uh, so what's the, what's your understanding, so comic books have a certain amount of popularity, um, and yet they're still diminished, the, the actual, you know, thing that you can hold in your hand, so why is that not, not, if this is so successful, why is that not reflected in in the continuing publication and distribution, even not not necessarily by the big corporate entities, but the, 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 you know the efflorescence of a comic book culture, if you will? Why isn't that? I mean, it, what's what? the explanation for its 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 its, 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 its demise? Uh, what the the of the physical comic yeah. book? Um, I mean, yes, that's that's a distinction, right? The licensing is huge, the, the publishing is not, um, and that's been the case, right, for a, for a long time. Um, why the publishing isn't successful, it, it's honestly a, a lot of really complicated reasons. A lot of it has to do with distribution. A lot of it just has to do with consumer interest. A lot of it has to do with the content and the way it caters to certain kinds of audiences and not other audiences. Um, a lot of it is kind of cultural status. You know, the graphic novel now has its place as it's kind of like revered, like literary thing, right? But that audience is also quite small. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of problems, right? And each of those problems kind of popped up at a different point between the 1950s and today. Um, and there's been lots of attempts to revive the market and, you know, deal with this issue and that issue, um, which is, you know, why comic books as an industry have become so dynamic and honestly are, are such an interesting space um, because they've had all of these struggles. So I can't offer you like a very simple reason as to why people don't read comic books. Um, you know, they're not easily accessible is probably the, the one and that means they're not physically accessible like when was the last time you passed when was the last time any of you laid eyes on a comic book like in a store okay yeah. I mean but did you have to go to a comic book did you have to go to a comic book shop I work in a comic book shop <laughs> right so you have to 
to write that so comic book shops became at a certain point the only place where you could buy a comic book. Um, that saved the industry. If comic book shops hadn't been invented in the late 70s. Early 70s. Early, early 70s, yes. I guess depending on how it spreads out. But if, the, if you didn't have comic book shops, the industry would have died. There would, there would be no comic books at all. But in saving the comic book industry, the shops also kind of uh, basically excluded a huge part of the reading population because now you have to physically walk into a comic book shop in order to buy one. Um, and there's been problems where some people feel unwelcome in comic book shops, and that's of course not the case with all comic book shops, but in some comic book shops. And how do you get a, a brand new reader into a space they've, they've never been in? Um, you know, it's there used to be on spinning racks in every convenience store. Yeah, yeah. And and like yeah. people of my generation, yeah. we grew up buying our comics at 7-Eleven. Yeah. But within that same, within a few years, we were at the comic book shops buying them instead because they disappeared. Well, what happened? There's a split. There's a legal split. Legally speaking, only a comic shop can sell a comic book issue. Any bookshop can sell a graphic novel or a trade paperback collection of issues. But that physical issue, that floppy paper whatever you want to call it, can only legally be sold right now at a comic store. Why? Wow. That is a complicated question <laughs> going back to uh, the way that comics are currently being distributed. And, and, but it backs up what you're saying. It's become so niche that you... From a financial yeah. point. So it's all about choking in itself. industry practice, not about... I mean, we have, it's an industry with one distribution <clears throat> company, yeah. right? Yes, like it is, and they are monopoly, and they do many monopolistic practices. And we have to suffer through that. And what is the name? Diamond. The Diamond Distribution Company. Diamond Comics Distribution is the full name of it. Which, right, so again, to understand it, and like you can also talk about content issues, and lots of people over the years have complained, you know, that, uh, that there was a point where comic books were so wrapped up in continuity that it was hard for new readers to get involved. I actually think that that is way less of an issue than these kind of structural issues. The fact that you have one distributor who's kind of creating this market that only that uh, structures retail in a particular way and anyway, it's 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 a really complicated picture. It's very complicated. It's it's also complicated in that that ability for bookstores to carry graphic novels. The bookstore publication day, opening day for a bookstore is a Tuesday. Comic book sellers are legally through their um, the uh, contract they sign with with Diamond, not allowed to sell those books until Wednesday. So they have different deals, they have different, you know, there's a, there's a whole evolution of the distribution industry, which I can, if you want to know more about it, happy to tell you about it, but you probably don't need to know it here. Um, and there's all kinds of changes. There's also been boom and bust cycles related to the bookstores. You know, the, the big boom of uh, manga in the 90s and then the bust of manga in the 90s, the big boom, the young adult graphic novels in both comic shops and bookstores is a present uh, trend that is making a lot of people very excited, but it's also hard to ride that trend if you don't know what you're doing. It's complicated. <laughs> Shauna, thank you very much. Thank you.